Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Hurricane Florence is expected to wreak havoc on the Carolinas. Congress is racing to fund the government. And one of our favorite TV writers and producers has revealed that Les Moonves harassed her. We discuss the week's news and talk with Professor Michelle Gelfand, who has a theory on the most important indicator of culture and behavior. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We're so glad everyone can join us. And we wanted to do a little ask. The forever and always best way for people to discover podcasts is for someone else to tell them. So if you love Pantsuit Politics, so many of you share your tales of uh, discipleship and sharing our, how much you love Pantsuit Politics with other people. But keep it going because that's the way people find the podcast. So if you love Pantsuit Politics, please recommend it to your friends and family and share on social media. Sarah is in Washington, D.C. this morning, so if we sound a little bit different, that's why. And we were just talking before we started recording about how the rain seems to be holding off in D.C., but our friends in the Carolinas are set for three really rough days. Yes, our beloved Elise is in the Carolinas, and she texted, she shared on Instagram, and she was like, I'm staying. She's not on the coast. She's further in, in the Carolinas. But she was like, don't at me. And I was like, I'm going to at you. Can you reassure me of your personal safety just the same? <laughs> Thank you. 
So we're thinking about all y'all. Everybody stay safe. The storm looks big. It looks incredibly wet and dangerous. And so we're just praying for everybody's safety. I think it's an important moment to consider how much is happening for lawmakers right now. Because Mm -hmm. ostensibly our government is responsible for the safety of our citizens during hurricanes. This is a tough time to be part of FEMA, especially because this looks like it is going to present a real challenge. Our lawmakers are trying to get the government funded. They're they're well on their way to that, but there are still some last-minute minibus bills, as they call them, that are being put together. Um, A couple were passed earlier this week, and I think that they're going to get this done, but they haven't gotten to the hard stuff yet. We are 10 years out from the financial crisis, which is something that causes lawmakers, I hope, to consider what we've done to prevent the next one. And there's some reporting about how we probably can't. And we've got a Supreme Court nominee. Mm. That's what we saw Mitch McConnell last night at a reception. And he said that they passed nine of the 12 funding bills. And he says the first time that's happened since, I think he said 1997. So, I mean, they're getting them through, but they're getting, according to reporting, the easy funding bills through. And they still have a couple of big lift ones coming their way. I think they're le- they're here till the 25th and then they're leaving, but they're having a rare October session, which the reporting is saying because uh, Senator McConnell wants to keep Democrats. He has way more Democrats defending seats than Republicans, and he wants to keep them in the Capitol legislating as opposed to out campaigning. So they're going to have a rare October session as well. As you started saying that, I was thinking we should give credit where it's due because Congress has really done a better job with the budget this year than it typically Mm -hmm. does. And then we hear about more McConnell maneuvering. And I just wish he would stop doing things like that. I don't understand, but he's not going to. He is who he is. (laughs) It's fine. Another person. Let him be who he is. Another person who is who he is is the president of the United States, who this week seems to be, I don't understand why, but reminiscing about Puerto Rico. He's the only one reminiscing, I can tell you that much, in, a, in a fond way, that in is. In a fond way. I don't even know. If I were him, I would just not bring it up, but I would not bring up a lot of things that he loves to talk about. This morning, before we started recording on Twitter, he said 3,000 people did not die in two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island, after, all caps, the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then a long time later, they started to report really large numbers, like 3,000, dot, dot, dot. Next tweet. This was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars and the B in billions and D in dollars are capitalized, to help rebuild Puerto (laughs) Rico. If a person died for any reason, like old age, just add them onto the list. Bad politics. I love Puerto Rico. He ends with an exclamation mark. And I have to include the syntax because I find the composition of his tweets oddly interesting. Here's the thing. (sighs) There are a lot of things. I've been thinking about this, and there's been a lot of interesting polling recently about, like, how many people see him as honest or dishonest and those numbers and how they're changing. And I think for so long, the narrative we had, um, you know, between the two of us and even in my own head as I would think about this is that it just, he lies and it just doesn't matter. But I don't think that's true. I think the steady drip, drip, drip of his dishonesty is eroding his image, more than just our institutions and people's respect for the government, which it most certainly is. I think it is affecting people's opinion of him. 
And it's like that I was reading some article this morning about how he's always trying to sell the economy and the economy's doing so good. I mean, that he should be benefiting from that, but he is his own worst enemy. I mean, like he, he'll lie about economic numbers. And then of course that becomes the story instead of the economic numbers themselves. And he lies about Puerto Rico. So what do they talk about? They talk about all the things he screwed up in Puerto Rico. Like he can't, I think for so long in his career, what he said was the only story. There wasn't a ton of reporting behind it because he was a celebrity. And so you don't need to do, you know, long reads on whether or not celebrities are telling the truth. But since he's president, every time he lies, it's not just he can't get past the like, you don't have to lie to get your name in the paper anymore. Like your name's in the paper because you're the president. And every time you lie, they're going to do research and talk about how it's not true and how this is where you really screwed up. You don't. I think I, I guess what I mean is for so long in his career, just talking steered the story and even lying steered the story. And he cannot come to Jesus with the fact that that's not how it works when you're president, that it's it's a much more complicated and difficult task to to steer the national narrative around your presidency and your leadership. And so when you per, you continue to just mouth off and lie, it's going to have a negative effect on your reputation and your administration and your policy objectives and your party. This might be an exaggeration, but I feel like every time I've turned on the radio over the past few days, there's been a reporter at some Midwestern football game talking to people about their feelings about the president. <laughs> and a lot of those interviews sound like, well, I mean, I wish he'd stop tweeting, but, mm-hmm. you know, the economy is doing pretty well. Yep. I wanted to share in light of these tweets about the hurricane, a message that I got from Dante, who is the composer and performer of our theme music. He said, when Hurricane Charlie hit us in 2004, my great grandmother was 98 years old. We lost power for nine days. She got very weak. My mom would cry every day, wondering if my grandmother was going to make it because of the heat and the lack of electricity. Now multiply that by an entire island with fewer resources Mm. and months of no power. People with illnesses, elderly, people with disabilities, people injured in the storm, infections, etc. Mr. President, you're going to tell me those lives impacted or lost are made up. And that is the impact of these tweets. I think we Mm -hmm. have such a tendency to go, well, it's Twitter. Who cares? Well, there are people on Twitter who have life experiences. And the very least he could do right now, I think, is not add insult to injury, to devastation through his tweets. And I worry about a president who can't even who who is going to set up the loss of life in a hurricane as a partisan fight when the country is about to endure another one. It just upsets me, and I appreciate Dante allowing us to share that because I think it's an important illustration that we we cannot stop talking about each other as people because we think there is some kind of political or PR impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One other thing I wanted to say about the hurricanes before we move on, speaking of recognizing the humanity of others, I am distraught over the story that about 650 inmates are not going Mm -hmm. to be evacuated in South Carolina. We haven't talked about this on the show, but have talked a little bit about it on Twitter, that um, in California, inmates were used as firefighters Mm -hmm. and paid almost nothing. And I think 
We've had a lot of discussions about criminal justice reform. We have got to stop sentencing people beyond their sentences. I think their sentences are inappropriate, but sentencing them beyond what a court of law imposed is a tragedy. And I talked in the Nightly Nuance last night about the conditions for migrant children who are being held in shelters by the federal government. And so I just want to mention that I hold all of these things together and all of these places where we are trapping our fellow human beings and then essentially saying that their lives don't matter to us as much as other lives just really breaks my heart. Switching gears a bit, we wanted to talk about the news coming out of CBS, the board of directors, after two really additional blockbuster reports from Ronan Farrow, fired the head of CBS, Les Moonves, and then yesterday they also fired the executive producer of 60 Minutes, Jeff Fager, who apparently was was threatening a reporter who was covering Les Moonves and harassment allegations against both Les Moonves and Jeff Fager. So clearly there were some issues at CBS. That's the first thing. What I really wanted to talk about was an essay from Linda Bloodworth Thomason in The Hollywood Reporter. Now, if you are not a Designing Women super fan like me, you might not recognize that name, but Linda Bloodworth Thomason was the uh, writer and producer of Designing Women. I credit Designing Women with, oh, I don't know, 70 to 80% of my political beliefs. It was an incredibly feminist, incredibly political show. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. If you have not watched it, you should find it and watch it. And she wrote this article about her experience with Les Moonves, which was not, you know, she wasn't sexually harassed or attacked by him. But when he became the head of CBS, Designing Women was like the flagship. She was at the top of her game. And he just, bit by bit, destroyed her career. She had like a $50 million contract. He shot down all her pilots. Bette Midler wanted to do a show with her. He said no. Huey Lewis wanted to do a show with her. He said no. And the part that really struck me, she said, in spite of no longer having gainful employment, I still felt proud that I had been allowed to make a creative contribution to the network I had grown up with, starting with Lucy and Ethel, who had electrified me and inspired me to write comedy. I never dreamed that I would become the first woman along with my then-writing partner, Mary Kay Place, to write for MASH. I took pride in being part of a network that always seemed to be rife with crazy, interesting, brash women from Mary Tyler Moore and Rhoda to Maude to Murphy Brown to the designing women. Many of these female characters paved the way for women to be single, to pursue careers and equal pay, and to lead rich romantic lives with reproductive rights. As I walked, I noticed that the portraits of all these iconic women were no longer adorning the walls. I don't know why, and I didn't ask. I just know that the likes of them have rarely been seen on that network again. And it just pissed me off and broke my heart all at the same time because Designing Women was just, it held such a special place in my heart. And I think I always sort of wondered what happened to Linda Blower Thompson? Why didn't she do any other shows? Just like I wondered what happened to Annabella Sciorra because I loved her so much in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. And just like I wondered what happened to Ashley Judd because she was this Kentucky girl. I was so proud of her and she was doing movie, movie, movie. And then she dropped off the face of the planet. And now we know that it was men destroying the careers of these brilliant women and robbing us all of their creative contributions to the world. And as a woman who is a fan, particularly of this woman and her writing style and her the story she was telling, I mean, I've never seen, well, it took a, I, I won't say I've never, it took a very long time to start to see shows that spoke to me in the way that Designing Women did. I mean, probably 15 years until you started seeing Sex and the City and Girls and insecure and shows that talked about women beyond just sort of their romantic contributions. 
and complex ways, of, particularly about female friendship. And it just makes me so mad. It just makes me so mad that we were robbed of these women and that these men came in with just almost like a single-handed agenda to destroy women's careers, to put women in their place, to silence their voices. And it, it just infuriates me. And like I said, it breaks my heart. I was a huge Designing Women fan as well. Oh, so and good. I think that Designing Women was pretty formative for me because these were Southern women mm-hmm. and it presented a really different vision of what being a Southern woman could look like. Now, look, I am not a crazy, interesting, brash woman. I'm aware of this about myself. So these characters <laughs> were were not were not people that I aspired to be necessarily. But they really mattered to me. Just any time you depict a woman in a new way, mm-hmm. it really matters. And something that struck me as I was reading Linda Bloodworth Thomason's essay was that these shows were phased out and they were replaced by all mm-hmm. these crime shows where you had basically prostitutes as victims every week. And she writes about this in a scathing way about what women's bodies are subjected to on these shows. And I can hear people kind of rolling their eyes like, oh, my gosh, like that's so not what it's about. But when you put it all in context, I think that is what it's about. I think it is what it's about. And it's really Uh hard to witness. And I'm appreciative of her writing this essay because I think we're in a time when it could be scary to write about a form of abuse that isn't sexual because that's Mm -hmm. sort of where everybody is right now. This is a much more insidious form of oppression. Mm -hmm. And it's a form to which I think many, many, many more women can relate. So if you think about the scope of Me Too – the volume of women who've experienced directly sexual harassment. And then you extend that out to include all the women whose careers have been chipped away at because what? They criticized somebody once. They looked at somebody the wrong way. They weren't appropriately deferential. It's mm-hmm. it's like everybody. I mean, it's like yeah. everybody. And I think that sitting here kind of processing my experience in a a more corporate kind of world and reading something like this from a person whom I've long admired. It's just very confirming to me of the impression that I got all the time. It, I loved that she started out by saying, this is not going to be an inspiring piece because I don't feel inspired Mm, because I'm still pissed off. (laughs) And she said, it's going to be petty. And I love that she used that word because the truth is So much of this damaging conduct is the result of pettiness in male decision makers. Mm -hmm. Petty male decision makers start these balls rolling and keep them rolling and take them to extremes because they don't care about anyone but themselves. And this is where I can get super fired up because that's what's sitting in our White House right now. And that's why those tweets about the the hurricane matter to me, because that is a loud, flashing, neon announcement of I don't care about anybody but myself, and I feel remotely slighted by something. And so other people's deaths Actual deaths don't matter as much as how slighted I feel. And if you can hear that and think there's not a patriarchy in America, then we need to sit down and have some coffee and talk for an awfully long time. Yep. Well, and I think what it just just confirmed for me, too, and I think it's so important to remember, is that this happened 
all in a big toxic soup with sexual harassment. Like this happened to women who were sexually harassed. Like they were sexually harassed and when they say no, their careers were destroyed. Or they were just destroyed because they, even if they weren't sexually harassed. Like this, it wasn't, it, we want to say people like Harvey Weinstein or Les Moonves, well, they sexually attacked women. But that, the mindset of the power over a woman that you feel like you can force her into oral sex permeates everything. It permeates everything. A woman you that they might not be, you know, have a second sexual thought about, that attitude is going to permeate. It's going to permeate the kind of stories they tell, the kind of stories they don't allow to be told, the kind of reporting they do at news organizations, the kind of shows they produce, how they treat their employees, how they treat their wives and children. Like that, it just, it's, it permeates everything. And it's, and it's not just, I think what's so important to remember is the cost is not just to those women directly affected, especially something when you're, when you're sitting in the position of power, like Les Moonves was. It affects all of us because he is in such a position of power that the decisions he makes affect everybody. Just like Harvey Weinstein, just like Matt Lauer, just like, you know, especially when you're talking about the news and what kind of, or Jeff Faber, like those, that's, it affects everything. And it affects the stories we tell ourselves. The stories we hear affect the stories we tell ourselves. And so, you know, it just, it makes me so sad because designing women, it seems silly, but it's, it's right. Like it affected how I saw myself. And so when he came in there and he destroyed her career he robbed other women of having that experience. He robbed other girls of watching shows like that and thinking, oh, I can say how I feel. I can run for office. I can do these things. Like, he robbed women of that. He robbed girls of that. And, like, it just, it makes me so mad. It just makes me so mad. And I'm, I'm, I'm like you, I'm so glad she just, she stuck with that and was like, we were robbed. I was robbed and everybody was robbed as an example, as a result. And it just <sighs> makes me mad. It makes me Julia Sugarbaker Terminator level mad. I think designing women was so important to me because I saw a woman allowed to be angry, to say, this is unfair, this is unjust, and I'm really mad about it. And for better or for worse, we didn't get a lot of examples of that as women, and we still really don't. And I think what you see post-2016 is a lot of pissed-off women who are like, you know what, I have every right to be mad. And that show was so valuable to me because as a young age, I saw, oh, I can be mad. Like, that's allowed. That's allowed, and it's powerful, and it's impactful. And I can't thank Linda Bloodworth Thomason enough for that. I think that's right, and I think that there are things that we can do about this right now. And I've talked about some of these things before, but I want to give you a list again because I think this really <laughs> matters because you are right. This kind of thing at the top filters all the way down through how everyone thinks and perceives themselves. It affects how people eat lunch. So thing number one, we have got to really see each other in our workplaces and our organizations and our churches. And so if someone is starting to be late who's never been late before, the mm. less Moonves thinking is, well, she's not committed to this job anymore. 
And Mm -hmm. your thinking needs to be what's going on there and how can I help? Mm -hmm. How can I get Mm -hmm. in? And it may, like, listen, a few people sometimes are just profoundly bored and need to move on. That's something we can help support (laughs) each other in too, right? The the supportive thing there is you seem profoundly bored and need to move on. How can I help you find something that's going to make you excited to be there? But sometimes someone is becoming chronically late or disinterested because they came from a chemo appointment or because Mm. they got beaten on their way out the door that morning or because they are worried about how they're going to pay a bill that they didn't expect to have. So just caring about people at that level, instead of thinking of everything in these self-contained environments of corporate structure and power. If we can just remember that we're all human beings, that can start to really chip away at this kind of structure. And I cannot encourage you enough to adopt that mindset. The other thing that I think is really important is voting for women. And that sounds like I have, you know, just put down all of my conservative credentials, right? But here's the thing. Putting a woman at the top of the RNC is not as good as putting 70 women on committees and in key positions because you can't deal with these structures by yourself. And that is the importance of somebody like Linda Bloodworth Thomason telling this story. She is a brilliant, powerful woman who was at the height of her career and still got railroaded. This still happened to her. So when you think that we're doing this identity politics thing and thinking that one woman solves everything or one president of color solves everything right it does not it is a it is a numbers game to get enough people in these positions and and here's the other thing individual women are going to contribute to this individual women are going to make mistakes they're going to abuse their power we got a really brilliant message from a listener talking about how women screw up too absolutely they mm-hmm. do this is why all of our spaces All of our public spaces and private ones, too, need a greater diversity of representation. You have to have more people willing to step out of these power structures to say, I know we've created this weird little Narnia for ourselves where the guy on top is running everything and we all need to be shaken in our boots. But there is a wide world out there. And in the context of that wide world, what's happening is wrong And we have as much power to stop it as he has to perpetuate it. He can only perpetuate it if we all keep agreeing to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm going to get off my soapbox now. Mm -hmm. I was enjoying it. I was enjoying your also your Julia Sugarbaker Terminator level of emotion. So (laughs) let let us all go forth and... (laughs) And perpetuate our Julia Sugar level outrage. I think that would be great. I think it would make the world a better place. I think that's what we're seeing in our elections with 182 Democratic women candidates. So, yeah, bring it on. And do the same thing, Republicans. Like there are Mm. there is a place for actual conservative thought from women that can move this country forward in a healthy way alongside Democratic colleagues. And we need that. And we're not getting it in this election. And it makes me mad, too. This whole conversation about culture, though, is a good segue, because next up, we're going to have a conversation about a really interesting predictor of behavior based on how a culture interprets rules, which fits really nicely with this conversation we were just having. 
Dr. Michelle Gelfand is a professor of psychology and affiliate of the R.H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland, where she studies cultural norms, negotiation, conflict, revenge, forgiveness, and diversity. We are so excited to bring you this discussion with her about her new book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special, and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash pantsuit. We are here with Michelle Gelfand, and she has written a book called Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. It is a fascinating book, and we're so happy that you're here. Great to be here. Do you mind to tell everybody 
how you conceptualize tight versus loose cultures. And I know that's a, a difficult question, but I'm sure that you have a quick way of, of encapsulating it for everyone. Sure. You know, I've been fascinated with human cultures for decades. Culture is such an interesting phenomenon because it's so omnipresent, but it's totally mm-hmm. Like we just take it for granted all the time that we're surrounded by differences in norms and values that we just don't quite recognize that are driving our behavior. And so I set out for the last couple of decades as a cross-cultural psychologist to study hundreds of cultures from the ancient Aztecs to Alabama, from Sparta to Singapore, uh, even from the military to Silicon Valley. And I was really setting out to try to see if I can discover if there's an underlying cultural code that drives what we do and how we think. And that's really what I discovered is a lot of it has to do with how tightly or loosely we adhere to social norms. Uh, All cultures have norms that we take for granted. Uh, We know to put clothes on in public. (laughs) We don't have have sex in movie theaters, most of us. Uh, (laughs) We don't face the back of the elevators. We we drive on the right or the left side of the road, depending on where we live. We, We abide by these unwritten and sometimes written standards of behavior. But there's huge differences around the world from what I discovered and how tightly people adhere to social rules. Uh, some cultures are tight. They're rule makers, I call in the book. Uh, they strongly adhere to rules and punish those who don't. And other groups are loose. They're much more permissive and they have a wide range of behavior that they see as uh, acceptable. And, and it's this distinction that I talk about in the book that ten, it's remarkably powerful. It shapes a lot of what we do, it shapes our nations to our vocations, and it shapes our parenting to our politics. And I'm excited to get this lens out to a general audience to understand how much it's driving our behavior. So here's my question. I, I totally agree about culture. One of my favorite quotes I always think about is Richard Rohr always says, culture always wins. It always wins. It's a very powerful force. And I wonder, though, if you see in tight and loose cultures a different in how they think about the importance of culture. It's a very meta question. But I find that when talking with people who sort of have different political views of mine or different sort of philosophical outlooks on life, there is this this hesitation to even see culture as a thing that influences us. Mm -hmm. Is there any alignment with how you view cultural generally, depending on whether you're a tight or loose culture? Um, that's a really interesting question. I think in the United States, because we have this metaphor that we're a melting pot, that many people think that culture is not so important. Um, mm. We are a nation that's separated by oceans from other countries. We haven't had this thousands of years of history where we've been battling other cultures. Actually, my younger daughter some years ago asked me if I'm worried about Mexico and Canada invading us. <laughs> and I said, wow, like that's really interesting. We just take it for granted that Uh, The world is extremely diverse. The world is, culture has been with us uh, since we've arrived on this planet, Uh, these differences in rules and values that we hold. So whether or not we recognize it or not, um, it's there. And I don't think it necessarily relates to the tight loose distinction. I think it's just a deeply American uh, phenomenon that we don't tend to think about culture. Hmm. That's really interesting because I feel like I do have a lot of conversations with people where I'm basically saying, see how the culture influences us. And there's always this, no, I mean, everybody can decide for themselves. Well, yeah, but like you said, culture is so powerful. Yeah. I think that what we don't realize is how much we need culture. Like Mm -hmm. imagine like we could think about, we need air, you know, for our bodies to, to properly work for us to stay alive, but we need culture to coordinate our human action. Like we need social norms 
whether we realize it or not, um, we're constantly engaging in this colossal coordination through social norms. And if we didn't have them, schools couldn't function, organizations couldn't function. If we didn't agree on a kind of shared reality and shared sets of standards, we actually couldn't do much of anything. We'd co- our societies would collapse. But societies vary around the world in terms of how tight or loose they are for good reasons. Uh, in my study that was published in Science some years ago, we classified countries around the world in terms of their tightness or looseness, and we discovered something really pretty interesting. Tight and loose cultures didn't have any commonality based on their location or their tradition or their language or their religion, but tight cultures across the board, and this applies also to ancient history and recent work we've done, tend to be threatened. They tend to have a lot of ecological threat and, and man-made threat. They tend to have more natural disasters. You see right now what's happening in Japan. Japan is one of our tightest nations in that study. It's been constantly clobbered by disasters, famine. It has been involved in a lot of conflict over its thousands of, of history of years. It has tremendous population density uh, compared to places like New Zealand that has more sheep per capita than people per capita. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you have a lot of threat, you need strong rules to survive. You need them to coordinate even more than you do in contexts where you don't have a lot of threat, where you can afford to tolerate a wide range of behavior. And we've seen this, as I mentioned, across the board. We see this in nations. We see this in states. In the United States, we can see that the tightest states have had the most natural disasters. They have the most pathogen prevalence. They have the most food insecurity. Uh, in a recent map that you see in the New York Times that was published this summer on natural disasters, it completely overlaps with our tight, loose differentiation in the U.S., or our tight, loose map. Can you talk a little bit about that? Which states do you consider having the tightest cultures and which states are on the other end of that spectrum? Yeah, you can see the map actually on my website. We published this um, in the Proceedings of National Academy of Science a couple of years ago. And what we see is that the southern states tend to be uh, pretty tight, as do some Midwestern states, including places like Kansas and Indiana, um, uh, Utah. We also see the, st- the states that are on the coasts are relatively loose. Um, And as I said, when we correlate our scores on tight loose in the 50 states with the amount of threat that these states have had, we could see a very strong correspondence. What's so interesting about this rank order that we have is that it produces a really interesting set of trade-offs. Tight states, in our other analyses, have a lot of order. They have um, what we would say is, you know, a tremendous amount of social organization. Um, they're less likely to have divorce. They have less mobility. They have less homelessness. They have people who are really rule oriented. Um, and they also um, have a lot of self-control. They have less debt. They have less alcoholism. Um, and, and in that sense, they have more self-control. And they're much more polite. In some of our data we've analyzed with tight states, they're much more polite. The loose states, I'm from New York, so I can resonate to this. They're much more rude. They're much more disorganized. Um, so they have that uh, problem where they have uh, less order and they have less self-regulation. Um, but loose states, and this also applies to loose nations, have the market on openness. They tend to be much more open to different people, to different ideas. They're much more open to change. So we see this across the board with more creativity in tight, in loose states, in loose nations, more patents per capita, more artists per capita, more things to do. They're, tight states tend to be relatively polite compared to loose states, but loose states tend to be fun, even if they're rude. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's interesting to think about that trade-off. I don't, neither are better or worse. It really depends on your vantage point, but it's a remarkably stable trade-off that we see across nations, across states, even across organizations. Organizations 
can be classified in terms of how tight and loose they are. They evolve that way in large part because of the threat they experience and the coordination they need or their accountability they have, lawyers, auditors, and they produce some similar trade-offs. So it's, it's a really powerful social lens to view human behavior across different domains. Do you see any tight and loose culture analogies within the political party themselves? I mean, you have obviously Republicans and Democrats in all 50 states, um, but do you see the culture within the parties to speak to any tightness or looseness? Well, yes. Uh, Clearly, there's some overlap with being conservative and endorsing tightness versus um, being liberal and endorsing looseness. But there's plenty of conservatives in loose states and there's plenty, plenty of liberals in tight states. What's even more fascinating is that the sort of norms and ideology among conservatives, they're changing and liberals dramatically. You see that Trump, for example, is a huge norm violator in a lot of Um, And some people might think that's good. Some people think it's not so good. But, you know, what you find in the conservative party is that in a context where typically norm violations are not acceptable, you find a lot of latitude. So there's a lot of shifts that we see based on ideology. Um, and so in that case, there's not a total overlap between tight loose and, and political parties. I will say that there is a really interesting trend that we see around the world where tight and loose is an axis that's defining what's happening with the rise of leaders like Trump or leaders in Italy or Poland or Hungary. And a lot of that has to do with social class. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our research, uh, we can see very clearly that the working class is quite tight. So when we survey hundreds of people from the working class, um, parents, students, um, people in the workplace, we see that they not only report a lot of greater tightness in their homes, in their workplaces, but they desire greater tightness. And when we gather their zip codes, when they come to our laboratory, we look at their through census data, what kind of neighborhoods they live in, and they're much more threatened. They have much more crime. They have much more unemployment. Um, their jobs are much less safe and much more dangerous. They report having much more um, threat in their daily lives. And what we find continuously is that um, the middle class and upper class, they have a safety net. They don't have as much threat, so they can afford to take more risks. And in the recent rise of different populist leaders, what we see is that um, the working class is very threatened and feels uh, that they want to return to a tight order that they were used to. Um, And these leaders are promising that to them. They're targeting them, they're activating threat, and they're using that psychology, that cultural psychology, um, to win elections. Well, to me, that speaks to the the threat analysis in particular. It speaks to almost like a hierarchy of needs, which we've had people on the podcast talk about before. You can't, you don't care about the rights of everyone if you don't feel like your children are going to have a safe future or... You don't feel like you can provide for your kids or your family right now. You're just not looking that far down the road. You have to focus on what's right in front of you. And if that means um, some tightness or limitations on the culture so that you, you feel more secure in your position right now, I think that makes a certain amount of sense. Yeah, I think it does. And I think it's an evolutionary principle. In our data, when I partner with computer scientists, we can look at groups that are under threat in these simulations. They quickly evolve to have strong rules and punishments because it's useful to have those tightness in those contexts to survive. Um, And so we could see that it's an adaptation that's evolved over human history. Um, We see, by the way, with the working class that even by the age three, we see differences in children um, from the working class and the upper class 
when we bring them into a laboratory, when we have them interacting with uh, a puppet, we call Max the norm violator, they're interacting with Max and Max is kind of having fun with them and they're playing games that they've been taught the rules on and then suddenly Max becomes a rule violator. He starts violating the rules of the game. And we simply videotape um, these kids and what their reactions are. And generally speaking, what we find is the working class kids, they really um, try to correct Max the puppet. They tell him it's wrong. And the upper class kids are more likely to laugh and, and less likely to be disturbed by the violations. We see these differences evolve very early in kids. And of course, parents are doing you know, a great job in thinking about their kids' futures. Do they need rules or do they not? And in that case, it starts very early. And we can't expect these differences to, to shift overnight. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. 
Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. How can this paradigm help us through a time when some of our arguably tightest institutions are struggling with their own roles. I'm thinking about everything that's coming out about abuse of power within the Catholic Church and people who voted for a President Trump because they were seeking a tighter culture, but finding a, a really chaotic one. Yeah. You know, it's a really interesting question. And I think as a general principle, people in power are likely to violate all sorts of rules. They live in looser worlds because they're less accountable than people who are in, you know, lower social statuses, like women, minorities. We've had research that shows that um, those groups are held to tighter standards. And so they're monitored more. They're, they live in, in, in tighter worlds. Um, they're punished much more severely for the same behavior as, as, uh, as majority members. And, and I think that what we're seeing is this need for more accountability um, of people, monitoring. Monitoring makes people behave well. <laughs> it's something Arunur and Zion at UBC said, you know, watch people are nice people. And powerful institutions, powerful people need accountability um, and in order to um, enforce uh, our social norms. And I think that's a really important principle that we see operating in all sorts of contexts. Social media is another example that we need to find a balance of accountability and monitoring in this new wild, wild web that we live in, where there's all sorts of anti-normative behavior because people don't feel accountable. Um, and we know that from social media, that the lack of social presence makes people do all sorts of strange things. Uh, of course, you know, it's a balancing act. It's always a balance, in my view, between tight and loose, between freedom and constraint. Um, but we need to start thinking really deliberately about how do we create worlds that have the optimal tight, loose balance and we can do that. I think that that's the great thing about culture. If we understand it, we can use it to make changes that can better our world. Are there good models for that as you look at countries and institutions, places that you, you see in your research have really struck that balance? Yeah, that's a great question. In the book, I, I talk quite a bit about how do we harness the power of social norms to better the world? Because sometimes we have to figure out where do we need to tighten? And other times you need to think about where do we need to loosen? And by the way, this applies not just to world events, it applies to our own households. You know, I'm raising two teenagers and I'm thinking about what's the right tight loose balance in my household? Can I, you know, think about what domains I really need to be tight in with my kids? I don't need to be tight in every single domain. Uh, I can give some domains a little more latitude and I can communicate that and negotiate that with them. <laughs> so, you know, as an example, my older daughter, senior in high school, she's a real slob and I have to kind of, say to myself, do I really care about this domain? Maybe it's not so important for me to legislate that domain. And so we talk a lot about which domains can we be loose in. Her being nice to her sister is a, is a tight domain. <laughs> she, they even said to me at one point, you know, mom, we know that you would beat us if, <laughs> if we weren't nice to each other. Now that's kind of an exaggeration, but <laughs> this idea that you can use um, the, the power of social norms, even in your own household, to, to negotiate with your spouse about how you make decisions, how much latitude and constraint do you want to have in finances? Um, th this is an important principle that applies in the household as well as in politics. In, in the book, I talk quite a bit about um, other um, areas in the world where they've actually used, um, not necessarily my theory, but they've used the intuition that they need to tighten up. This happened, for example, in Iceland that had a big alcoholism problem some years ago 
where kids were out in the street drinking. It was very unsafe. And they sort of said to themselves, you know, guys, we got to turn this around. We got to change the norms. And that's what they did. They had a deliberate effort where parents were out in the streets and enforcing curfews. And there was deliberate attempts to get kids involved in other healthy activities. And the, the amount of drinking and smoking went down dramatically uh, over time in Iceland. And it was, it, now it's being hailed as a, as a great model worldwide in context where we need to tighten for our safety and for our health. Um, there's other contexts in the world that I talk about where we need to loosen up social norms that have maybe for some years been adaptive, but are proving to be maladaptive in, in, in the current context. I feel like I love the idea that these are dials that we can kind of turn up or turn down because I live in a, I would, I would argue, looser city in a tight state. So I live in a city that has lots of artists and has lots of entrepreneurs and creativity and is more open, but it's in a more tight state like Kentucky. And I think exactly what you said, instead of presenting one as right or wrong, but when you can find the balance. And what's so concerning to me is what we read about over and over again is that people, instead of influencing each other's cultures and living in diverse places, we're siloing ourselves into places where we can just convince ourselves that the best culture is the loose culture or the best culture is the tight culture. And I think what you're saying is something very different. Yeah, that's right. And and I think you know, another related point to what you're making is that we exaggerate our differences. And once we can really like kind of sit down with each other, really understand like what are our lives really like, uh, it forces us to realize, wow, we were really stereotyping people as being loose or tight in exaggerated ways. I'll give you one example. We, we did this really interesting study in the U.S. and Pakistan. Um, and first we did some interviews and we found that, you know, Americans, if they knew where Pakistan was, thought that they were, you know, really super tight, like always in the mosque, never, they didn't associate them with like playing sports or reading poetry or being at fun family dinners or dancing. They always associated them with really tight context. And and Pakistanis on the flip side thought of Americans uh, in these interviews as being exceedingly loose, uh, like half naked all the time (laughs) (laughs) and calling the police and their parents because they didn't have enough freedom. Like they had these ideas about the other uh, cultures that were just, you know, they were really exaggerated. And of course, the media exaggerates this. Our fake news exaggerates this. And what we did is a very simple study. We, we, we gathered daily diaries among Americans and among Pakistanis who were students. And then we randomly assigned people in each culture for seven days to read every day the diary of someone from their own culture or from the other culture. And these were not, these were not diaries that were made up. They were real diaries. So Americans, you know, were waking up with their girlfriends or going out drinking, but they were also with their parents. They were studying and they were anxious about their work. And they had all sorts of things they described about their daily basis. And Pakistanis also, they were more likely in mosques. They were in stricter context, but they were talking about their friends and their fun and their sports. And and when they read these diaries, we, sh- we, we, we actually assessed their attitudes over time. We see a huge change in their, their attitudes and their perceived cultural distance. And it was just so wonderful to see that um, we were able to bridge the gap through that kind of technique where they could see, wow, we are different, but we're way more similar than we realized we were. And maybe we can use that intervention here in the U.S. Yeah, definitely. Anything else that you want our listeners to know, Michelle, about you or your book? Um, no, I mean, I'm just excited um, to have a book for a general audience on culture. There's so many books, you know, coming from psychology that are about how to stay motivated, how to have a better life. And I think that culture tends to be something that uh, people, as I mentioned, don't don't think about. And I'm hoping that this will help people to think about the world 
and, and use culture to to better our own lives. And I actually wrote this book for my dad, who's an engineer, who <laughs> always said, you know, you academics, we, we can't understand anything you say. Oh, so every, every every chapter went through with a pop test and my dad. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, I'm excited to get people's stories also. On, on my website, I have a tight, loose mindset quiz that helps people to understand whether, where they veer tight or loose and how it might be affecting their relationships. And on the website, there's a, a place to send in stories. And I'm excited to learn what people experience with this distinction in their everyday lives and, and, and to, and to connect with people about it. So tell people where that is. How can they best connect with you? Sure. It's on my website is www.michellegelfand.com. And there you'll find excerpts from the book and questions about the book and blurbs about the book, but also the tight loose mindset quiz that it's a short quiz. It's 20 questions. It's based on our research in the U S uh, and it helps people to understand how tight or loose is their own mindset. That is awesome. We will put that link in the show notes. And I have I have found this language so helpful. I've had lots of interesting conversations about this concept already. So um, certainly in my life, you have had the impact that you're describing. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Gelfand. And we will be back with you here on Tuesday for an all new episode of Pantsuit Politics. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram.